and welcome to Native Stories. Native Stories exists to share the voices of those connected to the land. Since ancient times, Kalo has been a physical, cultural, and spiritual staple in Hawaii. In our origin story, the first human, Ha'aloa, was the younger sibling of the first Kalo plant, Ha'aloa Nakalau Kapalili. Among many other sacred traditions, farming and cultivation of Kalo was unfortunately interrupted by colonization. In recent decades, however, there has been a mass revival in Kalo farming throughout the islands. Today we are here with longtime Mahi'ai artist and Malama Aina activist, Antimiala Bishop, who is doing us the honor of chronicling some of her and her family's part in the Kalo restoration movement. Mahalo nui, Antimiala, for being here today. How did you get involved in, in farming? Well, I, I think I have to start with my introduction to Kalo and farming because it, it wasn't a lifestyle that I was growing up with. But my first recollection of uh, my introduction to Haloa and Kalo was probably in Waiehu, Maui. Um, as a small child, about nine, and we were playing by the ocean where the outflow comes. And we had built, me and my girlfriend Yvette, this was Waiehu, Maui, um, had built this dam and we were damming up the river going into the ocean and while we were just playing and then all of a sudden a big hole came down in front of us and just started slamming at our dam and we were just like scared out of our wits and she said get the heck out of my oh get the heck out of here and don't ever come back right so of course we ran hightailed at home but a few days later, Yvette took me up the Hawaii and we walked up the hill all the way up and we came to an infinity pool where these kalo, the huli, had just been planted. And, and as we peeked up, it was like looking into Mr. McGregor's garden because, you know, we looked up and this infinity pool went out and all we could see was the huli and it was really magical. But, you know, that's just something I put on the side. That was just the first time I'd ever seen a lo'i. I really didn't even know what it was. Yvette was trying to explain to me. So some years later, just the fact that poi was a part of my life, always the poi bowl on the table, um, the very pickled foods, canned corned beef, that, that's what poi was to me. And I didn't really understand um, the cultivation of it, of course. And then some years later, my kids went to Waiahole Elementary, um, geez, during the 80s, and we became embroiled in the water case. So this is a process, yeah. It was a need to deal with the water issue at the time. And we all had gotten together, and I started to learn about the idea of the water being stolen. And so we got together, and we decided that we had to find, make a need for um, explaining to people why water was important in Waiahole. So that's what it boils down to. This is when I realized we needed to bring the Kalo cultivation back. And I would say that was my first inkling of trying to figure out that maybe I would have to take up farming. So I'm just going to talk about my genealogy for a moment. As my uh, great-great-grandfather, that would be like the 1870s, he was in a Hanapepe 
telephone book as a kalo farmer. So in a Hawaiian sense, I feel like I inherited the right to become a kalo farmer myself and to call myself one because I am going to invest in into that. You know, as I find out it is part of my history, I feel more comfortable doing that. I had a great-great-grandmother whose water was diverted in Kilauea, Kauai. They took all her water away that they used for cooking, bathing, drinking, and they took it to the McBride cane fields without even letting them know. Just one day, the water was gone. And she she was our first struggle. She went to, she spoke no English, but she found a kanaka that could speak Hawaiian, uh, write in Hawaiian, speak English, and write in English. So so he took up her cause and he had to write to the government of Hawaii at the time to try and get her water reinstated. And um, we still have that letter today. And at some point, they did return water back to her and her, you know, 13 kids. Uh, when I read that later on after the water struggle, you take it to heart. And um, I always carried that story. And then there we were immersed in this community that I didn't have that kind of um, relationship with time immemorial that I felt comfortable to just go ahead and be a farmer. And this is because I feel everywhere you go, if you want to start growing kalo, you better look next door. You better check whose lo'i you're standing in, you know, who owned it before you. Try and do some research and and see what the mo'olelo of this area is. You know, you can't just go and lease some land and now you're a farmer. You can, but, you know, in a Hawaiian sense, you really should get to know your community and have some kind of connection. So it was hard to get into Waiahole as a farmer. We just went in there because we're going to warrior for Haloa, you know, wherever we can. But we came upon a lot of resistance because people were like, who are you? You know, you don't farm. You never farmed before, you know. You can't just come here and start making aloe. So that was a struggle trying to be with the community. Yes, we fought the water struggle together, but when it came, when that was done and we won, it was back to a territorial thing. We still struggle today, and like you'll find in a lot of restorations of lo'i and the returning of the water to these lo'i that flow from the mountain to the ocean is that they still want to know who owns the water. We've had, we did the struggle with Kamehameha Schools, Campbell Estates, and um, a lot of other different entities that decided water was theirs. So once we started doing uh, the cultivation and we tried to bring the water back, there is just so much resistance along the way still of who owns water. So we're still at this point trying to explain to people that the water comes in, it waters the lo'i, and then it goes back into the stream. But the people that are below the stream, they have other ideas for the water. People that are above us, they have other ideas for the water. And to try and get everybody to come together to an understanding has just been really, really difficult. Still in this time, you know, in era, in Waiahole is pretty much specific to itself. Uh, we have Waianu Stream up Waiahole Valley Road, and then we have Waiahole Stream that 
Waianu flows into Waiahole. Waiahole flows past our land and we use it in our lo'i. Down below are fish ponds. So already we're having a problem because this, this is not a natural tilapia. Fish ponds is not a natural thing as a Hawaiian sense of how you would want your stream to flow. But that's going to take a lot of discussion with the people below that everybody gets on the same page. We need so many gallons of water a day to come through our lo'i. He needs so many gallons a day for oxygenating his fish. It doesn't really jive, but it should. So we have to find solutions to make sure everybody is happy. We're kind of okay, but, you know, the land does its own thing. Right? We just had floods and everything. We can't control that. The water comes over, the po'ovai floods, uh, dams bust out, which naturally it's supposed to do. And we all have to get back up there and make it again, which is what a nice community would do if we could get that together. But we're, we're still really far from getting that together. And even in the sense of our restoring Waiahole, we tried really hard to get people to bring kala cultivation back to Waiahole, and I'd say maybe an eighth did at that time. Maybe there's more now, and I have seen a few more lo'i around Waiahole, but in a farming sense, they still need to get on board. They tried to do the farming with the, the beans and all these other crop truck cropping. But for every person that's on that stream, we could have a lot more lo'i going on up there. So it's a very long process trying to deal with community. It still is. But through the years, as I grew up with poi, you know, it was the weekly bag of poi. You go down to the store, you get your bag of poi, you come home, and everybody was used to that. It's fine. They just give me my poi. We eat it. That's fine. So I'm talking 60s. So the bag of poi, the bowl on the table, you know, kahi, all that, that was part of my life growing up. When we finally decided to grow kalo and decided to farm in Waiahole, each area, so now we're talking about Waiahole as lo'i land, has their particular set of best practices. We have a certain kind of kalo that grows best in Waiahole, gives the best yield, deals with our water, is okay with our weather patterns, and for us, one of those is a variety called moi. So we grew that. Now, in the business world, and the poi you get off the shelf has always been lehua a variety called lehu. They like the color, they like the taste, and this was it for decades. But as we became more ma'a to kalo and understanding that, okay, moi is the kalo variety that grows best in Waiahole, we got to make that poi. So if you've ever been to the Rapoon's farm, and for decades, Lori Rapoon sold uh, the Waiahole poi, and they used moi, and people needed to get used to that. Then as time went on and the legalized pa'iai came along and people, again, started picking up the torch and taking their, you know, have Papa will travel, more and more different varieties, right? Just like wine. Everybody's a connoisseur, right? You know, well, this is what my tutu grew. This is what I've eaten all my life, you know. And now here in Waiahole, we're like, this is the kalo that grows best. It's more is a short, stocky one, makes good 
good corn and uh, doesn't rot for us. Good yield. Gives us a little less than a year for harvesting and just works really great in Waiahole. So now we have to sell people the idea that it's not just one variety. And so people got really smart about it and so we sell our poi at the Ben Parker Market. My son has taken over the Waihole side of the cultivation. And we can't always have moi. We can't always have the staggered this this lo'i this month, that lo'i harvesting next month. You know, sometimes he has to supplement from other places, other farmers, which is a godsend because now he can. Before he couldn't, you know, you're done. But lo and behold, if these people don't, don't see, they do, actually I should say, they do see the difference in the different color. They'll, they'll be like, it just doesn't taste the same this week. And we're like, what? Are you kidding me? You know, because it really was a different variety. And we didn't realize that we really got to sit here. That, that This community is so smart now that they can distinguish the different t- tastes and varieties, just like connoisseurs, you know. The public and our um, consumers just have to realize further that you're going to have these different tastes. You're going to have different kalo from different places, the ones that work for them. You might have a blend. We blend sometimes, you know, and um, pretty much everybody's happy with that. But there's still the sticklers that want that lehua poi, you know. The cost, right, is a whole nother thing. To be a farmer, you cannot survive on kalo. You cannot survive just growing kalo. Because like I said, he has to supplement once in a while. The, what is it, dollar a pound, two dollars a pound. People aren't giving us the prime price for kalo. So most of our people are on grants. Again, we would like to get away from that. We want to be self-sufficient. We call it living sovereign. We just need to be able to grow the kalo and then other crops to supplement and make it worthwhile because it's just a, it's just to live the lifestyle. We can't get wrapped up on making a dollar off of it. And we don't want to be chasing grants. Can we just have a lifestyle where we have a couple loi supplement our family's table, be part of our plant-based diet, get back to our cultural foods, and everybody just have, you know, a loi. You harvest harvest your corms, you make your poi, you feed your family. Okay, you got leftover, now we take it to the market. Okay, right now for our waihole, it's everything is to get to the market. Where we are farming now, Danny and me in Punalu'u, we really want it just to be family feeding first and then what's left to the market maybe supplement the waihole farm with kalo you know just kind of saying that it's pretty much just a lifestyle to want to be a kalo farmer this generation and a lot of generations before us i'd say in the last past 80 years or so we have not been able to be Hawaiians or be a Kanaka. We always had to be something else. Like my mom, she was a hula diva um, and she sang beautiful songs, but most of them were about island sweethearts or exotic places, you know, or a little bit naughty or just really upbeat. Part of it was her sovereignty to try and keep in a place that could keep you sane because she didn't think there was much more time for the Hawaiian people in a sense that there's no use to learn the language. There's no no sense learning the hula. It's all going to die out. You need to go out there and you need to be a haole. You need to 
learn how to use a typewriter, and just really don't expect too much. And don't even marry a Hawaiian, you know. Find somebody other, because we're so damaged that it's just a spiral downwards, right? Um, my mom telling me, don't even speak pidgin in this house. No, no Hawaiian, no pidgin. Perfect English, you know. So I had, pidgin didn't even come. To her, pidgin is all those other brown people. Okay. Hawaiians weren't, weren't pidgin speakers. Pidgin came about so all the other cultural people could understand each other, right? Like kao kao. Everybody used kao kao, but that wasn't Hawaiian, that was Chinese, you know? Lose that. Lose that Hawaiian-ness and just be a haole. Because I looked at the time a lot more haole. She said, just try and be like that. And so I did, but of course I still ran into trouble. And growing up, she didn't even want to come to my school. She didn't even want the people at the school to know that I that she had a that I had a Hawaiian mother. I, I carry that right as I grow grow up. Then we come to my own sons um, and their struggles through these this neighborhood. At the time my kids grew up, uh, my youngest was immersed in the the uh, meth ep- epidemic. It was all over Kahalu'u. They caught him. He spent five years in Ko'olau, five years in Halava, all stemming from this timeline. So when this type of stuff um, and these challenges that we couldn't as just a family address, right? We go out and we start to get in our neighborhood. Now we find out there's lots of kids like that, you know? Lots of this going on in Kahalu'u. It's affecting all of us. And then came along the charter school process. Okay, great. We can focus on Hawaiian kids, try and fill that void. Because for me, growing up, I had like a void. I didn't know what it was. I couldn't learn the culture. I lived with my grandmother, and I learned a lot from her. But the culture was kept from me. So to fill the void, I lived in Cocoa Head. Sandy Beach was my backyard. That's where I got my lickings. Okay? Sandy Beach. All the way from 12 years old to 16. That's where I hung. That's what filled my void. I was good at that. And and that's where you get your self-esteem. Another thing was when I hooked up with Danny, right? Now we're fishing. We're diving. This all still filled that void. And that's what I I did for years instead of having a culture. Because even when I tried to go to college, they didn't have, there was no grants for Hawaiians in those times. I, I got as far as I could and then I got married and I couldn't afford to go to college anymore and that was one of the heartbreaks of my life. So when the charter school came upon us and we found a way to uh, maybe answer the void of so many other children because now we know what's going on, you know, we jumped on it. We got on the board, Native Hawaiian uh, charter school movement throughout the whole nation. Right here in our home, Hakipu'u Learning Center was right down the street. We hooked up with them and of course, now that the kids are learning makahana kaike, we took the kids out of the classroom, took down the walls, everything was off-site, went to the lo'i, took them diving, uh, learned how to cook cultural foods, went hiking, and, and just took them out. And they were a captured audience. I mean, on in the van, you are lecturing all the way. You're showing plants on the way home. There's no, there's no you know... There's no hang time. And um, they ate it up. They really, they, they blossomed. And um, it's, it's, 
I think uh, I'm just amazed at those kids that, that had the hardest time are just flourishing now. One has his own tree trimming uh, business with like four trucks and four chippers and all these things. And another one went on to be a Punahou, I mean, Punahou like a sports athlete, athletics. And yes, he left Hakipu'u, but his time in Hakipu'u helped him move on and out. I, I see a lot of a lot of success stories, and now um, even the DOE has jumped on board. Okay, because in those days they weren't allowed to leave the campus. They didn't go on um, excursions. They weren't allowed to go in the water. And we at Hakipu'u, we didn't. We call it, we do what we call a cowboy. If we wait for the paperwork and the palapala to say we're okay and the liability, we'll never get in the water, right? So we just did it, just like the restoration of the lo'i. We just cowboy them. If we had to sit there and get paperwork from the archaeologists and DLNR and all these people, they didn't even have an entity to give us the paperwork or to deal with the paperwork, right? So we just cowboy them. We just go in there and do it. And in one day's time, you can have it carved up, have the water flowing, plant yourself some huli, and have the whole system going in one day. You know, when kids get, take part of that, because we also took them to the restorations of the different lo'i in the state, you know, accomplishment. And that really works for them. Oh, mahalo so much. You're welcome. Um, do you have any, any, any um, final thoughts for this interview? Or I don't think what? so. Um, pretty much covered it. Pretty much just wanted to say thanks to the next generation for, you know, Picking up that torch, Kane Alama, and carrying it forward for, for us so that us old people can take a break, mm. you know. And we're finding all new um, activists now, and we feel like our job is done, mm. you know. Right now, it's just the focus is to get more lo'i going, and mm. we're just happy to do that. Mahalo nui loa again to Auntie Meala Bishop for all the amazing work you and your ohana do. And mahalo for bringing us along on this intergenerational journey of restoring one of our oldest, most vital traditions, and with it, our relationship with our older sibling. As someone who grew up working lo'ikalo, I know firsthand that Keiki and Opio all over the islands are extremely lucky to have this foundation you've put your lives into building. We are as inspired and grateful as we are excited to see the directions in which the future of Kalo continues to grow. Thank you for listening to us on Native Stories. Navigate through location-based stories on our Native Stories mobile app. You can find it on Apple and Android stores under Native Stories. Go check them out and leave a review and tell your family and friends. If you have a story you would like us to tell, or want to sponsor a future podcast, location, story, or walking tour, please email us at info at nativestories.org. Please follow us on Instagram and Facebook under username Our Native Stories.